God damn it, you accursed. It's time for the only political podcast that would dare do one of two things. One, delay itself for 24 hours, just so they had time to assess the government's fiscal update and work up something cogent to say about it. And two, devote a full six minutes of the program to whinge over Cole Caulfield's ice time. Actually, we've done both of those things. Thanks for being with us and waiting for us. I want to thank I want to thank you. I want to welcome Jenny Byrne and Scott Reed, those brave strategic and communications warriors of government's past. Today on the program, all the fiscal update analysis you thought you never needed, because Scott's been tweeting about it breathlessly since before it was even announced, and Jenny's been on TV, but you're listening anyway, so here it is. We'll also talk about the tiptoeing that everybody is doing around Bill 21 and Francois Legault. Today's cursed clipping is the Fife and Chase Globe and Mail article about Michael Sabia. And as always, we'll end this little goat rodeo with our hey yous for the week. Scott, Jenny, how the hell are you today? Great. How are you, David? I'm all right. I'm all right. Yeah, I'm coming back to Toronto today again after a week back up here at the lake. So I'm venturing back into the big city. I'm a little rumpled. Got some Christmas shopping to do. That's, That's good. Nobody shops in yeah. person, eh, David? Like that five years ago, that was actually outlawed. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's not even got I missed that. Right. I missed that. You're yeah, not- it's a, more of a technology and where you must place your money uh, sort of priority now. You don't. You have to do it online. You must, uh, um, you must Scott, shop online. Scott, you can't be in a bad mood today. I saw you posted a great picture with your four boys. Everyone with the boys were back in town. You can't have a bad woe is me story this morning, do you? I, I, well, nothing's broken down. But, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know a lot about science. I don't know how the internet works. I'm not certain if you two can smell me, but we're recording this at like seven o'clock in the morning. I've actually been up for three hours. I couldn't sleep last night. So um, I'm just going to confess right now. I've not showered. I've not groomed myself in any way whatsoever. Um, it's possible. This will not be I'm- news to the people watching on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. So, so I don't know. I don't know if you can smell through the internet, but I hope not. Thankfully, no. So Thankfully, you're tired. No. You you're, you didn't get to sleep last night because of the Habs, right? So the fucking Habs, I get they they score they score with three seconds left in the second period last night to bring it within three two, and then give up a goal within the first minute of the third period. They're just terrible. They're just Petrie shockingly says, terrible. And Petrie says he doesn't understand what the system is. That even when he's been injured, he sits in the press box and watches the game and does not understand. 30 games into the season, only six wins, and he says he doesn't understand what the system is. If we were as bad at talking about politics as Ducharme is about co- as coaching hockey, no one on earth would fucking listen to us. Why? I know Jeff Molson just doesn't want to, like, bother with this season, doesn't want to pay three head coaches, but Jesus. They're tanking. They are tanking. It is not my. They're tanking. They know he's a terrible coach. They want to be terrible. I don't know that there's a person on earth doing their job right now who's worse at it than he is. Like, I don't, there, maybe there's like an electrical worker on a pole somewhere, like murdering himself and his four colleagues because he's like touching like the, you know, cable with his tongue. But other than that, isn't Ducharme the worst person in the world at what he does for a living? I don't know. What about O'Toole? No, he looked pretty bad last, last night. <laughs> Jenny, that was a good poker face. That was you a guys, good poker face. <laughs> you guys are awful. <laughs> smell All right, so sure. <laughs> let's get right to it. There was a fiscal update yesterday by the finance minister. 
And uh, when I watched the National last night, the update came on at the 13-minute mark, followed by a solid, following a solid wall of COVID, Omicron-related coverage. And uh, I can't tell what's on front pages anymore, but online it looks to me like the papers are also dominated by COVID today. Um, Scott, you were saying on TV yesterday that you think the government anticipated this in advance and redrafted the uh, update to uh, to adjust to this new COVID environment. Is that right? You want to expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, well, I and, just and, think- and, and and to prop to to to, to give uh, Scott props, Freeland basically admitted that in in interviews subsequent to uh, uh, when uh, we were on TV. Well, I, just, okay. I think it's rare. well. She did in the interview with Evan. If you could manage to endure the seven minutes of it to extract that <laughs> message, I may talk about that later. Um, <laughs> There's, hey man, there's a burning bush to liberals in that interview, in my view. But I'll come back to that. Um, I, I just think it's plainly obvious that you know they, um, and I think this is to. The, I think yesterday was a political win for the government, which sounds odd, but I, in a world of 155 billion dollar deficits and Omicron starting to overwhelm every aspect of our lives. I thought it was a win because they were able to they were able to adjust. They were nimble, and they recognized five days ago that an, uh, that uh, uh, an update that was wholly focused on addressing the, the the legitimate concerns about inflation and cost of living would seem off tone with the anxieties that people have, the rising anxieties around Omicron. And so, you know, I, I don't know. Like it seems to me that probably forty eight hours beforehand, they sort of said we need to add a couple pages here and we need to change our narrative. And so they were nimble in saying we're going to set aside. You know, four and a half billion dollars for Omicron, thirty billion dollars overall on pandemic, and and they were nimble and and making that their their core message. And that may mean that we have to come back and address inflation in a much different way and in much more serious way, or it may mean that the world is going to tilt on us. And you know, we may be looking at you know further restrictions and demand. So you know, will will collapse again, and it will re program all those economic considerations. But I thought the government was smart in that it recognized the big thing isn't the big thing we thought it was four days ago. And we need to talk about the big thing. And by contrast, you saw O'Toole didn't make that adjustment. He just focused on cost of living and inflation. And as important as it is, I thought he sounded tone deaf yesterday. Jenny, how do you think the government was positioned at coming out of yesterday? Uh, I think it was, I think, as I, I said before we started recording, it was it was kind of a big nothing burger. Like the fact that uh, uh, there was really no news generated out of it. It The news was yesterday, the uh, Vera, the Omicron. And I always pronounce that wrong. So I hope I got it right there. Um, but I'm not sure that's actually what the average Canadian, I think, I think a lot of us that spend time on TV and and. Uh, live in cities and we, we we deal with politicians and business people they're they're thinking omicron i actually think the average person out there and people that i talk to that are not in our sphere they're actually worried about cost of living covid has pretty much is, is done for them like covid is covid has been done for a while we are a, a country now with 72 percent fully vaccinated like I think 87 percent uh, with with one dose. We were told last year at this time vaccinations. It was like let, it was just over a year ago that Trudeau and Doug and everyone went and, you know, got their little box of vaccinations and said, we're getting our first ones. It's been over a year. And I think that that uh, I, I, I think that, you know, the government probably politically was smart to um, uh, pivot in terms of their messaging on on uh, Omicron uh, for the financial statement, because the financial statement didn't have 
Uh, the financial statement didn't have anything in it of substance in terms of addressing what is the number one issue, which is Canadians' cost of living. Uh, I think people are concerned about both COVID and cost of living right now. I don't know that the Conservatives have much to say about COVID. Uh, I don't know that anybody has much to say about COVID, to be honest. Um, and uh, and they're, they're on a wicket that is paying some dividends, I think, on inflation. Um, O'Toole, I mean... Um, can, sorry, can I just react to that specific point first before you go into O'Toole? Yeah. Because I think... I, I, I see this differently than you guys, I think. Um, I think that when... You guys say, you know, both these things, of course, both things exist. Of course, of course, people are anxious about both things. Of course, when we see, you know, grocery bills going up the way they are, people are anxious about it. But I think Omicron is swamping people. I think they're swamping them in their daily lives. I think people are freaked out about whether they're going to be able to have that Christmas party. They're worried about whether or not their kids are going back to school. A bunch of people are looking for these, you know, am I getting a note from the school board saying when your kid leaves school at the end of this week, make certain they take all their stuff because they may not be back. Like... I, I, I just, I heard it from every walk of life in the last two days. All of my friends, all of my family, my cousin's 65th birthday party, we may end up having to cancel it. My mom won't attend. Like, I just think, so I think it has this kind of like in the moment, oh God, we're headed back into this. And and I just think it's dominating discussion. And so I don't but think yesterday was what is supposed nothing. to say about that? What is no, but well, this, this, uh, I, I think that yesterday, and this is a big risk, I think, for the conservatives, I think yesterday wasn't nothing because the government indicated again narratively in the way in which it spoke to the update, which most people wouldn't pay any attention to, but they at least heard the government was responding on Omicron. They put more money aside for variant and for COVID, and they convened all the premiers last night, and they hear like, okay, well, they're they're responding to the thing that's causing me the most immediate anxiety right now, whereas the conservatives didn't. And as a consequence, I think they signal that maybe it's not a priority for them. And and that's a problem. So what could he say? He could say, listen, I think the prime minister isn't doing enough. I think that we're in this situation because the prime minister I, you know, I can't enough. believe that your conclusion from yesterday is that people would have concluded that the government was all over the fucking COVID thing and had their back. That that no, would be, but they were that at least signaling it's a, it's no, a priority said, for them. And they didn't they, hear that from uh, O'Toole. We are into my favorite season of the year. No, not rustic, overhopped craft ale that tastes like tree bark season. I hate that season. It's giving season. Well, every season is giving season, if you ask me, but this one is kind of famous for it. You all know that our presenting sponsor is TELUS. TELUS is a company with a social purpose, and giving is a core value. In fact, with over $1.2 billion contributed to charitable organizations in Canada, they're the most giving company. Now, you hurly-burlyites are a really influential and caring group. So TELUS would like to challenge you all to help spread the good word so that they can give more. Here's what I mean. This year, as you're reaching out to your local charitable and community organizations, shelters, senior centers, women's and children's charities, etc., if you could please let them know that TELUS has a number of giving programs that can help so many vulnerable Canadians get connected to technology. Mobility for Good is a big one. It distributes free, pre-loved smartphones to youth emerging from foster care so that they can contact the people, resources, and opportunities they need to succeed. Mobility for Good also helps low-income seniors and Indigenous women at risk. 
We'll talk more about that in the next couple of weeks. So, Hurley Burleyites, when you help spread the word this season, you spread access. So take up the challenge. Because when technology becomes more equal for everyone, this country is just better off for it. To find out more, go to telus.com slash connectingcanada. Well, well, I think in terms of, uh, Scott, some of the people you're talking to are probably the, the same people I'm talking to, people that are less worried about the actual COVID strain than they're worried about their kids going back to school in January because they don't know how they'll be able to, uh, uh, to continue to work productively and uh, also oversee uh, uh, virtual learning and they're worried about then the then you know schools not coming back there were there were rumors coming out of different provincial governments that schools would be shut down until the family day weekend which is towards the end of uh, which is towards the end of february so i think parents i think are worried about uh, are worried about covid but they're not so much worried about uh, worried about the strain of COVID. We're, we now are a country that's close to 80% fully, 72% fully vaccinated, 86% with uh, with one dose, and it's continuing to go up. So I think that uh, if governments are going to, if, if they're truly worried about this, we're hearing now rumors about travel restrictions, which really aren't restrictions. They're just, they're, they're going to be exactly the same as what we had for a year and a half up until October. Then they're going to have to have serious, uh, serious conversations. Because I can tell you, Scott, you probably fall in this category. I was talking to a couple friends who are, are, uh, absolutely livid about the possibility of schools closing down, uh, considering that there can be 20,000 people that 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 are up at the uh, Scotiabank place watching either the Raptors or the Leafs, which I have no problem with. But it, governments are going to have to make tough decisions. There, there are many things to do prior to 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 the, the shutting down schools and shutting down restaurants uh, before they get to that. They get to that place. See, I, I think this yeah. is really interesting, just politically. Let's just leave it at, at, at the political. I think it's super interesting because, one, I don't agree with you. I don't think that's the limit of people's anxiety. I think people are actually anxious about what the implications of this thing are and how effective vaccines will be. And if I haven't had my booster, what does that mean? And my kids haven't, who are under 12 haven't had a full dose of vaccinations. What's it going to mean for them? So I think people are anxious. They talk about 25,000, 40,000 cases in January. I think you start to look at that and you go, well, even if it's mild, Right. Like the numbers become so big that, you know, people start doing the percentages. You go like, so there's like, what, 0.25 percent leads to hospitalization. Well, if the base of that is 40, 50,000 cases, then it's still these are big, absolute numbers. And we look at the UK with 200,000 cases today. So I think people are about it. But more importantly, I think it's a distinction without a difference. Like whether it's I'm freaked out about the virus or I'm freaked out about the consequences of the virus, um, People are still freaked out about that thing. And I, uh, I think that governments either, and we've learned this over the course of two years, governments and government leaders and political leaders either are responsive to that anxiety. And I think by and large, no matter all the mistakes um, the federal government has made and other governments have made, being responsive to that anxiety has been a, has been a, um, a standard of uh, Trudeau's uh, successful navigation of this. And I think the conservatives are really, if they if they make the mistake of dismissing this and diminishing it, saying it's actually it's not as important as inflation. And yesterday, you didn't even hear Omicron out of O'Toole's mouth. I think they're really playing at matches. It's very predictable. This thing's going to dominate our political lives for the next couple of months. Yeah, but I think, I, but, I, but Scott, I think if, if liberals like you underestimate the, the cost of living crisis that uh, Canadians are having, that's going to, that's detrimental as well. I'm like, not underestimating. But, 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 but. but 
But but you but, are. By the way, it could be it could, absolutely. I'm not, and it could be completely altered in its dimension by COVID. If we end up with heavy duty restrictions again, then all of a sudden the demand is going to collapse again, and it's going to make this even more complex. Maybe harder in some ways, maybe less difficult. Like you know, I can't see Canada be leading the. If if we went down into lockdown, we would be solely in the category of where New Zealand and Australia are. No other country in the world uh, is, including our major trading partner, is anywhere close. Regardless if it's a Republican or or Democrat in the White House, they are not locking down again. They are not bringing in restrictions. It's not happening. And so it, I don't live just, in a world of not after twenty twenty. We'll see where we are in a month. Well. The lower mainland of British Columbia is no longer cut off from the rest of Canada. Washed out roads and rail links in the province's interior have been largely re-established. And the story of BC's worst flooding in modern history is already fading from newscasts and front pages. But of course, for British Columbians who've suffered through remarkably severe weather this year, let's not forget that same area was burned by some of the hottest temperatures on Earth just six months ago, The disaster continues. BC's deputy premier, with great understatement, has said that the scope of the damage inflicted by repeated atmospheric rivers was extraordinary. Our sponsor, CN, has been at the heart of the relief efforts and can vouch for that. The railway has donated $100,000 to the Red Cross. CN sent more than 400 people into the region when the floods hit, and they've been working 24-7 since. They've helped rescue stranded residents. They've ferried healthcare workers to isolated areas. They've delivered medical equipment. Oh, and they've done some serious engineering. CN had 58 track outages spread across 245 kilometers. All are now passable. In the process, CN employees used 110 pieces of heavy equipment to move 282,000 cubic yards of rock and earth and sludge. The fact is, CN is part of the communities its tracks run through. The people who live in those cities and towns are its neighbors. A lot of CN's employees in British Columbia make their homes in the interior. In any case, news headlines might fade, but CN will not. It will be there working side by side with British Columbians until the cleanup is done. BC can count on it. Um, O'Toole is in a situation where his approval ratings are plummeting among his own party supporters. So Angus Reid had a poll out last week that said something like 60% of conservative voters in the last election have a favorable opinion of Aaron O'Toole. He's in a battle for a certain segment of voters right now that he's got to win hearts and minds. I presume that that is more effectively done on uh, on, uh, cost of living uh, than on COVID. I can see some reasons why O'Toole is, is doing what he's doing, but he surely seems to be in in bad shape. I, I I actually don't really know what explains the dramatic drop in in his uh, support uh, favorability numbers among Canadians overall and among uh, conservatives in particular since the election. I'll tell you one thing that confused well, me about the up. Uh, go ahead, Jenny. No, no, yeah. no. Go ahead. I was gonna I was gonna give my thought no. on that, but you go ahead. Do no, it. I think, Do it. I want to well, hear it. I, th- I think that in terms of conservative voters, uh, I think people voted. It's, it's we've talked about this before. The thing that, that that right now, the only thing holding the conservative coalition together is their dislike for uh, Justin Trudeau. I don't necessarily agree with it, but that's what it what it is. And without without there being an election, an imminent election, the election is passed. Trudeau's won without having that. 
then 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 people are free to say, well, I actually don't like O'Toole. I don't think he's a conservative. I, I think he's blah. Um, he's he's he campaigned. Uh, he campaigned. Uh, uh, Heart on on further spending. It's a problem he's had. If you've watched the commentary leading up to um, uh, leading up to the uh, uh, the economic update yesterday, uh, when he was asked or when conservatives were being interviewed, they're like, "Well, you ran on a platform that would have had deficits higher, that would have had spending higher at this point. So how can you how can you say now to rein in uh, rein in spending?" And so I think that's the problem that Aaron uh, that Aaron has. And I'm not sure I'm not sure that you know I I think his messaging yesterday was uh, was was good messaging. Um, I'm just not sure it map it matters for him uh, for him specifically in terms of though. The, the liberals, things that people haven't really pointed out in terms of their assumptions is that if we want to talk about the economic, what she said yesterday, um, she she said the deficit figures were lower than what they expected. But there was a caveat on that. The, we, we think they're lower, but you're not really going to know until we do the budget. Um, and they also do a lot of assumptions. Uh, good for the province of Alberta. A lot of assumptions in terms of the price of oil and gas. They're, they're predicting in terms of the numbers that they put out yesterday that oil would stay up uh, this year, uh, $70 a barrel next year. Uh, drop down no more than $66. So, so, so they're relying on uh, uh, oil and gas. They're like relying on Alberta to be able to make a lot of the spending promises that they, uh, that they did uh, uh, yesterday in terms of talking about spending on COVID and what have you. Well, uh, one of the things that interested me about the update was the indigenous compensation angle of it, because this is a whack of money. I'm not saying it is uh, in an inappropriate amount of money. I have no idea. But it's a whack of money. There was no preconditioning for a $40 billion spend. Uh, it dwarfs any other story in the, in the statement yesterday. And they haven't talked about it or even bothered to explain it. So when I was watching the news last night, I was seeing these huge numbers roll up on the screen. And I was wondering what ordinary folks were going to think about that. I think exactly what we just said. I think it passes. I, I, I think, you know, we live in a strange time. Um, you know, we live at a time where a $40 billion expenditure, uh, which would make everybody's eyes pop out in any other period, um, gets passed off as a footnote. And people sort of say, well, we knew there was a bill coming and we know they're trying to settle this suit and we know that that's going to have long-term implications. But people for out there don't know any of that. No. People out the media know that. People out there don't know any of that. No, but I mean, people, you know, they, they know that what the residential schools, we were all sort of taken by that. I'm not saying that everybody's supportive. I'm not saying everybody's in de has detailed knowledge, but I think people sort of felt like there was a bill coming. And I just don't think in this period, people have a hard time distinguishing between 4 billion and 40 billion and 200 million. Like it just, it's all, the numbers have gotten so big that they feel like, you know, it's almost overwhelming. And secondly, from a pure tactical standpoint, they slip it in the day before the update, which is being rewritten around uh, people's fears about Omicron. And it's mentioned, but as you say, it can't, narratively, it can hardly break through as a, as a piece of news that people can find time to digest. So this is a genuine question, though. This $40 billion, though, isn't for residential school supporters, survivors. No, th this is... I, I, as I understand, it's two funds. There's 20... Is it $23 billion? Twenty-seven. Um, $27 billion. And um, it's sort of backward compensation. And then the balance of it is for a series of um, further commitments going forward. 
uh, notionally directed. But it's not about residential use. schools. It's about Jordan's principle and underfunding of yeah. social services for That's right. Indigenous people. That, that resulted yeah. in foster care and institutionalization of children. And to agree to which the government did position it, when Miller did the uh, did the news conference the day before the update, he sort of positioned it as, this is a pox on everyone's previous house. This is a bill that government's refused to pay in the past. Um, and so, you know, it was almost sort of positioned as, if you don't like this, uh, well, blame somebody else, because we're just having to write the check that others uh, ignored and refused, and finally the bill has come due, which, I mean, there's a lot of truth to. Well, in terms of spending generally, though, uh, it, it, the, the more Canada spends, the more our inflation is going, the, the more it's going to, uh, the more it's going to go up. It's, it's why the Americans and us are, are, uh, are in the position that we're in. Their inflation is, is higher than us because they've, they're a bigger economy and they've, they've essentially printed more money, added more money into the uh, economy during uh, COVID. And that's the problem we have now. So uh, a lot of what they're talking about, I think that's, it's, it's short-term gain that they're talking about, but it's going to be long-term pain for uh, Canadians because the cost of living is not, is, is continuing to go up. People can't afford to buy homes. Food prices are going up. And um, I, I think that people are underestimating uh, I think media and uh, others, politicians are underestimating what that actually means uh, to people uh, that are living uh, paycheck to paycheck to paycheck, uh, how an extra, you know, $200 a month paying extra for food and, and more in terms of uh, in terms of gas is to is to uh, uh, is and, and, and starting January 1st. Uh, payroll taxes increase, uh, which will hurt businesses. And of course, the uh, carbon tax uh, increase comes in, which will affect cons consumers in terms of uh, filling up their car and heating their homes. Well, uh, this is why, I mean, I know you get, you're, you're getting frustrated, David, with me, but I think that I think the variant has rewritten this whole dynamic. I would have agreed with you a week ago. That was the, that was a dominant political risk for the government. That had to be the dominant political challenge it responded to. Um, I don't know if it would have. I don't know if it would have done it very effectively in the update. Um, but I think that Omicron has rewritten um, what the dominant political challenge is now. And well, inflation inflation may be a completely different kind of beast if if we're into uh, severe constraints in in January and, and February. If that doesn't happen, then I guess we're right back. I keep coming back. Isn't it the case that both of these things are huge things? And whether or not it's the government's fault, it's happening on their watch. So the fact that the Conservatives don't have any answers on either COVID or inflation doesn't change the fact that it's happening on people's watch, and on the government's watch, and not just this government, but all the provincial governments. I mean, surely, to go back to what we always talked about, when we were urging the, fed the federal liberals to call an election before this all went to shit again, right? What we, what we were anticipating was a really toxic mix of you've got a lot of bad road right now. You've got, and, and the Om Omicron thing is an added dimension to it. But if, if we go through a year of high inflation and rising prices of essentials and COVID, it's going to be a horrible time to be in government, no matter how much you say you've got people's backs. No? Yeah, I think I, I agree, but I think where I don't agree with you guys is 
I don't think it's a stacking issue. I don't think it's like, Jesus Christ, you've got this economic dislocation caused by inflation. I mean, people talk potentially about stagflation. What if you have low economic growth and high inflation? That could happen. What if you have deinflation that's caused by, you know, a, lo- a lack of demand if something happens? Well, you're uh, in such an elite discourse. What about the price of cold cuts? I understand that. You that's what people are talking about, the price of cold cuts. Yeah, Scott, I think, I, think, I think people that we talk to, even us on the podcast, we have the luxury to say that, that the Omicron variant is our biggest political concern or our biggest concern. I do not think that is the case for the average person in Canada that is, as I said, living paycheck to paycheck. I do not think they are sitting and watching CNN wall to wall about uh, different case counts. I think they're trying to figure out a way how they're going to be able to buy all the Christmas gifts for their kids um, uh, in the next week. And I, I, I don't think I agree with you guys. So this is my point is we, we talk about this thing, these stacking, we got an inflation problem, we got anxieties about COVID and variants and whether it's this variant or another variant, this all makes it a very difficult time to be in government. Yes, it makes it a difficult time to be in government, but I think these are qualitatively different things. And, and by the way, they, they affect one another. COVID will affect inflation and the other economic challenges. My view is that's distinct from you guys is that I actually think Omicron overwhelms inflation if it's bad it overwhelms everything else and then what people expect of government and demand of government is do they get that do they get that that is where their anxiety is so different than your perspective jenny because i'm saying literally here on december 15th we don't know how scared to be about it but i think on january 15th we will and it will be the dominating fear in people's lives and so is government responsive to that? And is it focused on that? And if they are, then people will say that government's doing its best. And I'm going to grudgingly give it as much of my approval as I'm willing to. And if they're not, then it'll fail. And I just, I, I don't think these things are co-equal. Um, I, I think that when something like Omicron and COVID has taught us that when it takes center stage, everything else is pushed off stage in terms of people's anxiety and what they demand and expect of government. Okay. I'm not going to respond because thing- I, I, I disagree. So I, I know, I know, I know, but I think that's interesting because one of us is going to be right. One of us is going to be wrong. And Dave well, will say I, he agreed I, with both of us, no matter what happens. Not, He's trying to not, split it up the middle. Not that, not that I keep track of things, but it was me talking about in, inflation going to be an issue in, in on the Labor Day weekend of uh, 2020. Yeah. No, I think you keep pretty careful fucking track of things actually. <laughs> Save your speech for the podcast awards ceremony. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Last thing about the update before we move on is I was glued to CTV yesterday to watch you two and your commentary. And so I saw Evan Solomon interview Minister Freeland. And I'll just say that my overall impression was that rather than being excited to talk about her update and her plans for the economy, she seemed tired of having to explain herself and having to explain the government's position on things like inflation. There was a, an underlying sense of um, impatience, irritation. I, it was an odd communications exercise i thought i thought it was weird like i at one point i did she, did she not say that well do you want me to answer the question or did you want me to finish or like it was it was um uh it was uh it was very off-putting uh you, she did look annoyed to be there um i 
she looked at certain time pained to be there. Um, I, the one thing I will notice, and this is less about substance or style and more substance, is that they are really uh, putting a lot of emphasis on uh, the job numbers. Uh, they are trying not to talk. I think, David, to your point, if she's not trying to talk about inflation, it's because it's not good news. There's nothing good they can say about it. They, they, the cost of things are, are going to continue to increase. Um, where the, the, the jobs numbers that came out last month were good, and, and she focused on that a lot. She focused on her speech, and in her interview uh, with Evan afterwards, she, she started by saying, you know, when I was a young, when I was a young woman out of university and, and just finished journalism, the, you know, the most important thing that I could have for security was a job and the, the job numbers are up. So they're really putting a lot on emphasis on that. So I think that she, she might've just been annoyed, David, because she didn't want to actually answer any uh, substantive questions on, uh, on uh, inflation and probably just wanted to talk about uh, the variant and uh, jobs. I'm glad you raised it, David, because it's on my mind. I mean, it's what I was hinting at earlier when I said Bernie Bush to liberals. And by that, I mean, it's a Bernie Bush that is speaking to liberals to say, listen, if, as we've discussed on previous pods and people muse about and in the salons and bar stools around Ottawa, people talk about this stuff. If Trudeau is going to choose to move on, then it seems very likely that she is the odd on, odds on uh, front runner. She's the putative front runner. She's, and there's going to be, as we've discussed, I think a lot of pressure for people to say, well, we want to see her succeed. Um, and I'm just going to say this, that performance, and I'm maybe being unfair because I'm singling one performance. So Jenny and I were on with Evan and then they paused our panel to go to the interview with her. Um, I think um, her manner, as you said, David, seemed agitated. She seemed frustrated with Evan that she was having to explain herself. She wanted to take control of the interview instead of having a conversation. And I think possibly just as important, um, there was no message there. Like, there was no message whatsoever. I didn't hear her saying, look, we are focused on Omicron and inflation. These are the twin focuses of our government. And this is how, in fact, we're going it. Coming back to those things, it was, there was not a ton of coherence to it. So there wasn't, there wasn't a crisp, clear message. Uh, there was a manner that seemed to be frustrated um, with, uh, with the questions and with the interviewer. Um, uh, and I just think she's got to be better. Like she's too important to this government and too important to the liberal party's franchise interests going forward, given the unique position that she now occupies that she can't, she, she can't afford to not be better than she was yesterday. She has to be one of the government's most capable and effective communicators. And as a communicator last night, the interview we were present for, um, it was a real fail. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, Bill 21. Bill 21's blown up in the last week uh, based on uh, the firing of the teacher in Chelsea or the reassignment, I should be more accurate of the uh, teacher in Chelsea. And it looks like there's a lot of pressure underneath all of the leaders to break their silence on this. Perhaps oddly, it feels like there's the least amount of pressure on Singh, oddly enough, um, well, to do he came, that. He came out yesterday and said that uh, he would support now uh, the uh, illegal uh, court challenge to Bill 21. And what does that mean? What's it, what uh, is he saying now? Well, he's saying that it it he they, they, if he was part, if he would support the federal government uh, 
uh, taking uh, Quebec to court regarding uh, Bill 21, which no one, including him, uh, none none of the leaders agreed with during in the election. That that remains the position for uh, O'Toole and for uh, Trudeau. Uh, But we're seeing more and more signs, in my opinion. So you've got Singh has Singh has come out now and said he would support a legal intervention uh you've now uh you've got really senior liberals that have come out mark garneau was on twitter against uh bill 21 uh bob ray um uh really uh provoked the ire of the uh block uh yesterday but coming out in terms of uh bill 21 the block uh blanchette came out and and uh and went after him so my guess is is i will i predict that uh the liberals uh trudeau will eventually be because of of how wrong this law is and and the um uh and, and people's reaction to the teacher in chelsea being uh being fired uh, a friend of mine's niece and nephew nieces go go to the school and this teacher was very loved uh his you know his nieces are very upset about it like it's so it, it so so i think that 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 this is i think there's a lot of people that didn't even know what bill 21 was prior to this and they're seeing and they're seeing now what it is and they're not liking it, including the federal, the provincial government reaction, Legault's comments, Legault's, the government reaction simply saying, uh, well, she shouldn't have been hired in the first place. That was the fault of the school board. They never should have hired in the first place. Just seemed very, uh, I, I, I think he's obviously Legault is playing to his, uh, his base uh, leading into an election campaign, but I'm, I'm not sure that Quebecers and I'm not sure that the Quebec government understands what the reaction is outside of Quebec. His base, Jenny, his base, the latest polling indicates that he may have the support of every French person, every French-speaking person in the province. Like the, the provincial Liberal Party is about to disappear off the map, and the PQ have already disappeared off the map. Um, it is astonishing the consensus among Francophone Quebec about Legault right now. <clears throat> Shocking. I, um, when, I, when Anne McGrath graciously came on the hurly-burly to talk to me about the election camp, I asked her why Singh hadn't used Bill 21 as an opportunity to distinguish himself um, on, from the others. And she cloaked it in uh, national unity principles. She said, basically, we didn't want to provoke um, Quebec in that way. We didn't want to create a national unity problem uh, over that issue. What's changed? I think the sharp edge of what's happening, it's the, it's, it's that we've moved from a discussion of a legislative, uh, and, and constitutional, um, matter to this teacher in Chelsea. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, I think it's just as simple as, um, storytelling and what we all know, right? Is that what, you know, when it's an abstract, it's one thing, but when it comes to, um, Jenny's family, uh, and, and their kids not being able to be taught by this teacher and the gross and indisputable injustice of it, right? I just think then it becomes electric and you end up seeing people squirm who are accountable as leaders and saying, well, why don't you object to this and try to do something about it? People squirm because there's no good way out of that. You have to, I mean, it's hard to talk, well, well, we have to be, you know, I'm, I'm worried about what the, what, you know, what the national unity implications of it might be. It's like at some point this becomes in that example about right or wrong. And, and so it becomes extraordinarily awkward. My, 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 and I just may be stupid. So I, I think where Jenny is, is, is right. I think that it feels like 
the gravitational pull of this issue is increasing. Um, I think you're going to see that it's impossible to resist greater, louder, more strenuous objection to it and and declaration of opposition to it. I What I can't see, what's fuzzy to me in my mind, is how any of that... What that means in terms of what gets done, like like if the prime minister was to change his tune, and he's always said, look, I oppose it personally, but, you know, I, I playing cards and all that stuff. So if he elevates it and says, I think it's flat out wrong, and I'd like to do everything in my power as prime minister to um, to correct it or to halt it or to combat it, I don't, I still don't, like, I mean, do you pass a new law in the federal parliament that tries to overwhelm that how do you like you know what i mean like because he used it not well, all you have is the power of disallowance which hasn't been, all you have is disallowance which hasn't disallowance seems to be the only tool and i don't even think that's a desirable way to go much less a practical way to go so so then you kind of sort of, if people shift their language what do they what are they then in support of what happens and i i don't that remains murky well this may be you know back to leadership politics this may be the most consequential issue of all because there's tremendous d- demand from Trudeau's English Canadian base for him to be the leader that they want him to be on this issue. And if he opposes Bill 101 vocally and takes on Legault and gets into a fight with Legault about this, you can see any chances for a liberal majority disappearing because they'll be on the wrong side of that issue. And uh, so if he feels compelled uh, for, le- you know, for, personal or legacy reasons to stand up and fight this it may mean it may it may have consequences that go further down the road because it may eliminate the prospect of gains in quebec it may in fact foreshadow losses in quebec but if the election happens like i don't think anyone believes we're in uh, other than aaron's rhetoric no one believes we're into having a, a an election anytime soon this is going to be this is going to fall into a long minority uh situation the same as kind of the 2008 to 2011 ilk, it's going to be a longer minority. So a lot of things can change, even if he was to take on this fight, if Trudeau was to take on this fight now, uh, it could be, a, it could, it could be an issue from a bygone past uh, uh, three years down the road. And so I think that can be a calculation you make. I think that depending on what happens with the conservatives, it's, it could be an issue in their leadership uh, leadership as well, because uh, Aaron has uh, firmly been kind of in the camp um, the same as Trudeau, Quebec has the uh, has the ability, has the right to uh, make these decisions on their own. But there is a very strong uh, sentiment in our caucus and in our party outside of Quebec uh, that this is uh, that this uh, law is is wrong and very discriminatory. And so, um, I think that depending on what happens with Aaron, if we see ourselves, the Conservatives see themselves in a leadership race, I think this will end up being an issue. Uh, um, it'll be an issue as well uh, because it has been. It has been at least. Uh, it, it, it's been reported, or it's been the wisdom that both Andrew and Aaron won with some of the smaller ridings, with the support of some of the smaller ridings in Quebec, which also has changed from our last convention. A riding now has to have a hundred members to be able to have a hundred points, and so the the smaller the smaller ridings in Quebec uh, will mean uh, less electorally in our point system uh, during the next conservative leadership race. It's a wrecking right. ball. It, it's a wrecking what ball is, of an issue. Uh, this issue, yeah. Bill 21, it's a wrecking ball of an issue. And I can't help, part of me wonders if Legault fully understands and appreciates the complications it creates on the federal stage. And he's happy to have it dismantle um, anyone and everyone's claim with the exception of the block in terms of federal seats. I wonder if he says, well, that, 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 that political tension and that political outcome at the federal level strengthens 
the hand of Quebec, strengthens its independence, and I use that word with great deliberate, deliberateness, strengthens its independence because it maybe it helps to prosper uh, the likelihood of further minority parliaments at the federal level, which allows um, Quebec to have uh, further latitude. So as I, understand the, as I understand the Trudeau government's argument is that if there's lots of opposition, allegedly, oh, I haven't seen it in polls, to Bill 21 within Quebec, there are people that are going to challenge that law legally and that challenges to the bill from internally in Quebec are going to be viewed as legitimate and taken seriously, whereas interventions from outside Quebec are going to be seen as outsiders meddling in their business and force a collective tribe response. That's been the argument for keeping the feds out. That actually makes sense to me. That rings true to me. Um, that, um, you know, uh, that if it was the federal government that stepped in in some way stopped this from happening, um, that that becomes the issue rather than Bill 21. The ability of the federal government to interfere in Quebec and, and run Quebec's affairs would become the issue rather than Bill 21. Everything about my history, that rings true to me. But do we think Do we think if another province, any province other than Quebec, brought this law and the federal government would have the same reaction? No. 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 But we're always walking on eggshells around Quebec. <laughs> like, I, I know people probably have never heard this or had this thought occur to them before, but I think Quebec is different. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, just a pet theory of mine I've been working up here during COVID. I've been kind of cooking that up in my basement. I think Quebec is different, guys. Michael Sabia spent decades helming major Canadian companies before the Liberal government recruited him to be Deputy Minister of the Department of Finance. He accepted the job, he said at the time, in order to drive an economic growth agenda in Ottawa. But so far, according to many with direct knowledge of the department's inner workings, he's not been able to deliver that agenda, nor has he made headway in reigning in public spending. Insiders say he has struggled in a political system where the prime minister is more interested in redistributing the existing economic pie than in generating private sector growth. Another obstacle for him has been working for Finance Minister Christia Freeland, who doubles as Deputy Prime Minister and his other heavy files on her desk. The Department of Finance is viewed as the most important ministry in Ottawa, but it increasingly takes its orders from the Prime Minister's office, where economic policy is driven by political calculations, according to more than a dozen Liberals, corporate executives, and former departmental officials not being identified, most of them. Bob Fife, Stephen Chase, Globe and Mail. Where does a story like that come from? Well, it's an important question. I'll jump first. Um, it's an important question because I actually think where it comes from um, is the whole ballgame. So because there's two possibilities, either it comes um, from a participant in it, either it comes from Sabia uh, or someone of his ilk uh, who's close to him. And it's a it's, it's a deliberate effort um, 
or it comes from a bunch of people who are just kind of in the periphery who are yanking on themselves and don't know and exaggerate what they know and they purport that their characterization of things is how it is and because it's a juicy story it gets written i think it's the latter um uh i really really don't think that this comes from michael i've worked with michael you know uh in a couple of those big corporate gigs that that have been mentioned um i have crazy respect for the guy like he really reminds me david he reminds me a lot of paul i don't know how much you've worked with him but he's indefatigable he'll call at seven paul, o'clock I worked on with him Sunday a lot. morning pardon me paul i worked with him a lot yeah D- didn't he remind you of paul i mean he was just kind of like hey no i said know? i worked with paul a lot i've never worked with sabia oh they remind me of one another. Like, it's just something like, I'm sorry, is this 6.30 a.m. on Sunday? Because this just occurred to me. And I was wondering if you have 90 minutes to spare. You don't? Well, too bad. Let's talk for 90 <laughs> minutes. So, boom, right? Like, it's work hard, work all the time, very focused, crazy smart, very creative. So, I got all the time in the world, and we're lucky to have them, I think. But um, I just don't buy. I don't buy the story. So, I think it's, I, I, like... I don't buy it in the sense that I don't think it comes from him. And so I go back to your question, where does it come from? And I think it's so monumental. If it comes from him, then the story matters. If it doesn't come from him, then it's people yanking off in the newspaper. I think it's people yanking off in the newspaper. Yeah, but What's I think... But, yeah, go ahead, Jenny. But, but there ha- there, this government doesn't focus on economic growth. That's like, it's what they said. It might be people yanking off uh, in the, right. in the, in the paper, but, but what they're saying is true. So um, I, I, that for that reason, I can't see it being Sabia himself just simply because the story is so unflattering. If, if he did, if that was a plant for him, then he needs, he needs new comms people uh, to help him out because uh, that was a, um, that was a fail. I think that probably though, this was, there was a lot of fanfare. They, they, they announced it was what last December, November, December, they, they announced that he would be uh, coming in um, uh, to, to kind of fix all things. And uh, uh, this sometimes happens. Like it's, there is a reason politics is people, people kind of looked, some people look down their nose at politicians or uh, career public servants in terms of, uh, in terms of abilities, but, there, but, but it is a profession. There is, there, people are good at politics. People are good at, at, you know, certain people are good at being a, a bureaucrat just because you're a, you're good in one sector, just because you're a good businessman doesn't mean that you're going to be good at coming in and, and running the finance department um, I, I, of Canada. And so I think that um, there's probably, he's probably the, probably the bureaucrats that work with him are unhappy, probably Freeland's office uh, seemingly is unhappy because I assume some of the people quoted in that article were um, uh, unnamed staffers on the political side. Uh, and obviously he's extremely unhappy. So I think you've probably got a situation in finance right now where all parties uh, talked about in that article are unhappy with each other. Right. Yeah, I, I can I can see that. I can see that. I also have a hard time seeing what imprint he has made so far. Like I'm trying to imagine how anything would be different if he wasn't there at the moment. And the things that you might would have expected him to be strong at, the government has not, which I think would have been on the growth investment um, uh jobs and growth front um i haven't really seen that out of the government yeah. yet so maybe he I, is frustrated maybe he's trying I, to lose track for why things are moving more slowly than you might have hoped maybe well and he probably I, I, also sorry go ahead scott 
Well, I was just going to say, I agree with that, but I think there's also two big factors there. One is the fundamental issue, which is at the middle of the story, and we've all acknowledged, which is that there is a certain degree of disinterest in economic policy uh, at the center of this government, right? That it's not the thing that floats their boat. Um, and so that, you know, that happens. Like, if that's a definitional driving force, you know, we saw with governments that we'd worked with, David, that it was, and then we've seen the governments that we'd worked with that it wasn't, and it, it creates a completely different atmosphere. The second thing, I, I think, to be fair about, you know, the imprint he's able to. It's it's the discussion we were having in the first half of the pod today, right? Like, it's it's hard to it's hard to hold up that measuring stick these days because every time you get two months of breathing space and you think, well, maybe it's time that we can start to sort of work on this agenda. Boom, you know, fucking COVID comes along again and then blows up uh, all best laid plans. So it's it's a tough time to evaluate someone's impact in anything other than managing the crisis. Well, and there's probably also you, you you remember the people that we like recruited for as candidates where, you know, you'd have people call them. They would always have their calls returned and then they kind of get on the inside and uh, th they have the closer you are into proximity, the less uh, the less, um, uh, you know, kind of the less access you have. So my guess is Serbia uh, probably had his calls returned by the prime minister and others uh, within the government a lot faster when he was outside uh, than when he was uh, deputy minister. All right, guys. I think we've I think we've outlived our usefulness for the day. Um, <laughs> time for our hey yous, Mister Pinsent. Please uh, re regather the troops we've lost over the course of the last hour. Ladies and gentlemen, please return to your seats. The hey yous are about to begin. Who's up first? I'll go quickly and I'm, I, I am, I'm going to break my COVID rule, but I'm going to do it. Any, I'm going to do it anyways. Um, my hey used to all governments as they're making decisions that affect people's uh, lives and livelihoods in a lot of cases uh, in terms of uh, government restrictions and, and what have you that we're all hearing rumors. Uh, we have been told for a the last year and a half to follow the science. And right now the science uh, that we're seeing out of other countries are that this is a uh, less, um, uh, you know, a less damaging or less uh, virulent strain of, uh, of COVID. And so uh, I would just ask all governments to listen to what they have told, uh, told Canadians uh, for the last year and a half is follow the science when making decisions that are going to affect people's lives. All right. Follow the science. Scott, what do you got? Uh, uh, my hey you, very quick too. Uh, my very quick hey you is to the Ontario government. You're now the last holdout on a childcare plan. And I think that officially means you've lost negotiating leverage. So take the deal. $10 billion ain't chump change. Christ only knows how this whole thing unfolds in terms of negotiating, implementing all that kind of stuff. Uh, so we don't know that taking $10 billion will obligate you to take a heavier end of a program that will perpetuate itself. Take the billions, get the job done, finish the deal. It's only going to get harder for you from here on. All right. Scott wants to pay less for childcare. Um, my hey you goes out to uh, Christia Freeland, which is take yesterday's interview with Evan Solomon, give it to Dan Arnold, ask him to set up some focus groups to watch it, Go watch those focus groups. All right, everybody. Thank you very much for listening today. I want to thank our presenting sponsor, TELUS, and our sponsor, CN Rail. And I want to thank uh, Scott Jenny for being here and lighting up our Wednesday morning, a day late, but never a dollar short. And thank you all for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Curse politics. Take care of yourselves.